Hi everybody, my name is Pat Hogarty and welcome back to California Real Estate Practice, Real Estate 310. Today is going to be show number nine. We finished up show eight uh, the last time in which we talked about the listing agreement or the breakdown of the listing agreement. A couple things that I want to remind you, remember that we have uh, show eight is up on the uh, website, up on the, through the Blackboard website, available for you to watch uh, through streaming media. The other thing that I want to remind you, and I'm not, again, I'm not going to date this, but remember we do have our first midterm exam coming up rather quickly. So you're going to want to go to the Blackboard website. Remember that I have, you're going to want to check the course outline. That's one where I'm giving you the, the uh, date. But the other thing is, is I have a thing that's in Blackboard called the exam schedule. I've talked about it several different times in which there's a button on the left-hand side of the screen. You just click on it and it will actually give you, and I'm not sure whether I have the Blackboard, uh, let me just check and see if I have Blackboard up here. I, yes, I do. So again, I don't want you to uh, bobble, come up on the plasma screen here in a minute. I just want to point out that right here on the left-hand side is where I have the exam schedule. And remember, these dates that I have on here are for the semester that I'm teaching now, so don't go buy these if you're watching this in, say, in the spring or something, or next fall or spring. But anyway, when you click on that button, you will get the times and the days of the exam and the room schedules where we're going to have the room or we'll have the exams. Also remember, too, that we're going to have two times in which you'll be able to take the exam. One will be that you'll be able to come in in the morning and take the exam, and the other one will be for our friends that work during the day and need to take the exam in the evening, so you'll be coming in the evening. Again, you want to take and check on those dates and make sure that you're here on time. Remember uh, that we have parking issues here on campus, so you're going to want to arrive on campus early to take the exams and uh, make sure that so you're here on time so that when the exam starts, if we're going to start at a certain time, you're sitting in your seat with your Scantron, your number two pencil, and you're ready to go. Okay. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of move around a little bit here. We're going to be talking about the next chapter, which is involving something called selling or selling real estate. And this chapter has a lot of information in it. In fact, for a lot of us that have been in the sales business or sales industry of some sort, we know that there are classes that we have taken, numerous classes, on things like how to overcome objections, consumer behavior, how we as consumers operate, how to qualify clients, how to qualify customers. We've talked about all of that. In other words, we've had a lot of courses like that. This is only one chapter. This by no means covers, even scratches the surface of all of the topical areas that you need to know about working with people from the sales standpoint. It's important, though, that in actually in any industry that you're in, whether you're an attorney, an accountant, or especially like a real estate appraiser, because a lot of people will go into a real estate appraisal and think that they don't need to know how to sell, and you do need to know how to sell if you're in a real estate appraiser. But the concept is, is that you're going to be working with clients. You're going to have to sit down and be able to listen to what they're saying, what their desires are, what they want. You're going to be having developing really good, if you will, strong listening skills so you're able to hear what they're saying and kind of try to draw in your mind a picture of what they really want. You may actually be working with them and doing a little bit of testing and saying, so you're really talking about a three-bedroom, two-bath house in, in, in uh, the downtown Sacramento area. But from what you're telling me, having a swimming pool is really important to you. Is that true? You know, so you're going to want to be qualifying them and having an understanding of what they're at. And then you're going to be working with them, helping them get qualified to, find, you know, to buy that property, finding out whether, what financial, how much money they make, whether they have the financial means to qualify for the property. 
and then showing them a series of properties to see which ones they like and then helping them through that process, that closing process. And remember, when we're talking about sales, it involves two areas. If you're working with a listing and you're trying to list a piece of property for sale, you're actually selling your services. So understanding how people operate, why they want to sell, what kinds of pressures they may be, be, be under is very important. Conversely, the same thing if you're talking about buying, working with buyers, trying to learn what they want. So anyway, this is what this whole chapter deals with. And there's a lot of stuff stuck in this chapter. You know, how to deal with objections that clients have, just a lot of different things. So we're going to be going over this chapter a little bit line by line. First thing I want to do, and we'll pull up, go over here to our all-friendly document camera, is they talk initially about just the American, you know, the American dream and about, you know, just general brokerage. And one thing that I want to mention that they have down the bottom here that's really important, it says, th it says think of yourself as the navigator. You should guide your clients through the selling and the buying process with, good, with a good map and a solid strategy. So again, what you're initially trying to do when you're working with clients is understand what they're trying to accomplish. You want to make sure that you understand how much money they can afford. You don't want to be showing the million-dollar homes if they can only afford to buy a three or $300,000 house or it's their first starter home. Conversely, you don't want to be showing people $300,000 or $200,000 houses if they're looking for something that is going to be costing a million. You really do want to understand. You're going to find out, you know, where, you know, the schools that the children go to is that very important to them, or are they my age, where the kids are grown and they're gone, and you really don't care about schools. In fact, you want to be as far away from the schools as possible because you know they have a lot of traffic. So you really are looking at those things. You're really trying to figure out what you need to do in order to help the client. So what I'm going to do is. Uh, First thing that I'm going to do is move over here into the book. And the first part of the book I think that's important that they talk about is shopping for a home. And again, I'll be going back and forth to, uh, to these pages. And some of these things are, are things that we say all the time, and, uh, but in reality they're very true. It says, for most buyers, purchasing a home is the most important financial decision they will ever make, and it becomes the largest asset that they will ever own as the loan is paid off. That is very important. If you talk to most people today, and you say, and you would sit down with them and say, well, how much money do you have in your savings account, your checking account, or whatever? You'd find out that most people usually have maybe a, you know, a paycheck or two and maybe in checking. They maybe have a month or two or three months in savings. Uh, probably the areas where they have the most amount of money that they have saved, and in reality it's been because somebody's forced them to save, has been in their retirement plans, like if they have what we call a defined benefit plan and somebody is telling them, you know, you know, you work for the state of California, and listen, when you retire, if you put 30 years in here, you're going to get $2,000 a month. Also now, what's happened in the last number of years is what we call 401K plans, 403B plans. In other words, forced type of savings is one of the areas where people are going to have money. And I say the reason forced is because of the fact that, guess what, we, and I happen to be one of them, when you're younger, you don't really think about putting money away. It's not until you're in your 40s or your 50s and you start looking at the idea of maybe you want to retire in the next you know, next couple of years or next five or ten years that you start looking at it and say, you know, thank goodness somebody was wise enough to force me to put some money away when I was 18 years old. But the last area where people have the most amount of money is in their house. That's very, very important. In fact, you will sit down and find out that probably the most amount of wealth that people usually have is in their home. They maybe own a home that's maybe three, dollars $400,000, and if they have lived in it for a long period of time and haven't refinanced the heck out of it, they're going to have a substantial amount of equity in it. 
and that is going to be the largest asset that they probably have. It's also important because when they get ready to maybe retire, what's going to end up happening is they may very well want to do something called downsizing. They may want to take that house that's fairly large and sell that and use some of those proceeds to buy a house, a smaller house that's in a nice area and completely pay it off so they don't have to worry about monthly payments and maybe even have some money left over for a vacation or, or maybe to help supplement their income. Okay, so, but the idea is that uh, real estate, buying a home and living in it is one of the largest investments people will ever make. Uh, they also tell you in here, which I think is important, they say most property owners move on the average of six to eight years. And what happens is, is that I think that for, if you take people that typically you know, buy their first house and you just look at why in the world do they even move, even if they don't move out of the community. And when I say community, I'm talking about the entire Sacramento area. And when I include that, I'm saying, you know, Sacramento, Roseville, Rockland. In other words, within this geographical area, usually what will happen is, is that for reasons of just how old they are, they will probably buy and sell maybe three or four houses during that period of time. Usually the first house that they're going to buy is the first one when they move out of an apartment, and they're usually looking for what we call a starter house. Some of them will buy a single-family home if they, you know, if they want to go out and cut the grass and you know, take care of, you know, work on the car and have their own garage. Some people will buy a condo or a townhouse. That'll be their first house. What they're essentially doing is they're looking at that time. They may or may not be married. Uh, they may actually buy it in a partnership with somebody else. They may buy it with the idea in mind that they're going to move somebody in and help pay the rent. That's what I did. I bought my first house when I was 21 years old. And, you know, I had one bedroom and I rented the other two rooms out. My payments were $130 a month and I rented one room out for $65 a month and the other one for $55 a month and that gave me $120 a month for rent. I mean, that's not uncommon when you're first starting out, especially if you're single, that gets somebody to help you so you can buy the first house. But that first house is usually by no means the final house that you're interested in. It's the first one to get you going. The concept there is you're trying to buy a house, build some equity, build your credit, start buying something. Okay? And uh, usually what will happen after that is that you'll get married or you know, start having children, and all of a sudden you'll realize that that one-bedroom, one-bath condo that happens to be 708 square feet large or big is not large enough to handle you and your wife or you and your husband and your kids. So you're going to want to move. So usually you move to the second house. And that second house is usually probably a fairly good step up, you know, for clients. Usually if you're like I am, you probably are really stretching on that second house. You know, you're, in fact, you're probably most of the time you're stretching on most of your houses. You know, you're really looking at the fact, hey, listen, I want to try to buy the maximum amount of house that I can you know, what the, you know, that I can at that time. So you may be are committing a tremendous amount of your monthly or weekly income to making those house payments. Okay, I know I did. Uh, that's why when we talk about income ratios, you'll find out in the beginning, you may be, hey, 35, 40, 40% of your income is going directly to make your house payment in one form or another or maintain it. So usually the second house you'll have that's usually big enough for you to have, that's usually maybe a three-bedroom, two-bath, two-car garage, big enough for your family, uh, for the kids, You'll go there for a while, and then all of a sudden something will probably happen that forces you, which you, you know, you may even think that's it, I'm done. But whatever reason, we all tend to make the next step up. We go to the third house. That's usually the big one. 
that's the one where we maybe have, you know, if we needed three bedrooms, we actually have four. We have a study. We, ha we don't need a three-car garage, but we have one. You know, we have a pool. We have, the, you know, we're really stretching. We also do this in time frames. In other words, the first house is usually somewhere in our late teens to somewhere in our early 20s when we make our first purchase. That's usually the age group that we're in, somewhere in that group. Second purchase is usually somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, the late 20s to early 30s. Okay, the third house is somewhere usually in maybe the late 30s to maybe possibly even up as high as I think in the late 40s to early 50s. And then if we make one more move, and I'm just talking about average now, Usually, that's at the point where we sit around and we say, you know what, we have this house, it's a five-bedroom, three-bath, three-car garage, uh, it's got a pool in the backyard I'm not using much anymore, you know, and, af and usually after the kids have moved out and you realize, you know, you don't really have it, and you're getting close to retirement, you decide you want to sell it, and then that's where usually we're moving and we're downsizing again. So that's the thing that we're going through. Each phase of that buying process, we're earning a certain amount of income. We have certain family needs, we have certain income needs, and we, our whole age, if you can believe this, your whole age perspective changes at each one of those places. You know, I, it's amazing. I find even today at 50, I'm going to be 56 years old, the, if I open up the newspaper, the articles that I will read and the things that interest me are things that I would never have read when I was in my 20s, you know. So you're going to find, I know it's hard for you to believe today, but believe me, when you get a certain age, you are all of a sudden going to go click and you're going to fall into the next zone and you're going to be thinking differently than you did prior to that. Okay? So anyway, that's what we have to do. We have to know where the clients are. Where are they in the buying process? Now, that's if they live in Sacramento. You may also find out that there are people that are moving in from out of the community. In other words, they got transferred from someplace else to here. Uh, if they are coming from a place and they, uh, for example, if I had a family that was coming from Oklahoma City in Oklahoma, those people down there, and I can show you on websites, could be moving out of a four-bedroom, three-bath, three-car garage made out of two-story, 3,000-square-foot house that they just sold for in a beautiful area for $200,000. That's the truth. And they're coming to Sacramento and they're looking to buy a house for maybe the same price. And you take them out and show them a one-bedroom, one-bath house, you know, uh, you know, in an area where you need to carry a shotgun to protect yourself, you know, if you're going out to check your car in the middle of the night. I mean, it's not a desirable area, okay? So they may very well go through what we call sticker shock. You know, they may have a hard time that you're going to help them and try to educate them on what houses are selling for in the area, okay? You can also have the opposite end of that where you have people that are moving from the Los Angeles, Bay Area, San Diego area that are coming up here, and they have sold something for substantially more than what they could buy here. So conversely, what will happen is they'll say, I sold a three-bedroom, one-bath house in Los Angeles for $800,000, and now they're moving up here, and they're looking at buying something that might be uh, not a three-bedroom, one-bath, but a three-bedroom, four-bath with a three-car garage, and it's 3,000 square feet because they have the money, they can afford it. So you have to figure out where the buyers are at. And you can't judge, one of the things you can't do is judge a book by its cover. You can't look at the people and say they pulled up in a Mercedes and therefore they can, apply, they can afford this. They pull up in a Mercedes and maybe they're taking every nickel they have to make payments on that. Somebody else pulls up in an old beat-up pickup truck with paint on it like me you know, and find out that they maybe can afford a little bit more. So you can't tell. You have to know by talking with the client. Anyway, 
One thing they say down the bottom that I think is very important is buyers should realistically select the area in which they can afford to purchase, which may not necessarily be the one in which they would prefer to live. Uh, the, the first time buyer, that, fir that first house is often the one that will make possible to eventually buy his or her dream in, in, in the right direction. One of the things that's important is the fact that location of where your clients buy homes are very important. Very, very, very important. You're going to find that when you look at homes in an area. You may take and look at certain areas of Sacramento in which you can buy a three-bedroom, one-bath house, and maybe it's going to cost you $200,000. You can go to another area where you could buy a 3,000-square-foot house, and it's going to cost you a couple hundred thousand or $300,000, but it's not going to be in a very good area. So usually what you want to do is you want to get the best area you can possibly afford because that's going to have a direct impact on the clients on how much the property is going to go up in the future. Okay, very important that the area is good if, if at all possible. Um, next thing they talk about is the different types of homes that you can buy. Okay, uh, first of all, I would say people fall into two different categories. Uh, they're either going to be people that are going to want to buy new homes or used homes or older homes. If you had talked to me maybe three, four, five years ago, six years ago, I would tell you that I ha would have a very, very difficult time buying a brand new home because I think you'd get more value for a used home because it already has you know the trees and the landscaping and all that other stuff in there. I'm here to tell you that I have a brand new house and I really love having a brand new house. Because guess what? Everything works. I'm not, you know, I am, I'm not having to paint. I'm not having to fix walls. I'm not having to fix plumbing. You know, it's really nice having a new house with everything new that you have designed and built for, with, to your specifications. In other words, you've decided what color. You know, that's what buyers want if you're buying a new home. I mean, they're looking and they're saying, okay, I want to buy a new home, and I want it to look, I want it this size. I want this color countertops in that in the kitchen. I want this kind of appliances. I want this kind of tile in the bathroom. In other words, you're getting a chance to pick and choose what it is to make your house. Uh, and, and you'll know when you go out and look at houses, I mean, if I took every student in this class and took you out and showed you houses, there would be people that would like, you know, take a look at the house that I have and say, I don't like it, but I like the other one. I mean, it's all a personal preference. So the point is, is that, when you have a brand new house, the biggest advantage is everything is new. It is really nice. For the first year, if you've built it brand new, it's under warranty. If something goes wrong, it's almost as nice as being a renter. You can call up and say, listen, the shower's not working well. Can you come over and fix it? You know, it's really nice to have a new house. It really, really is nice. Um, and uh, I think if you've owned homes and you've had to do repair work and you've had to do, fix things up, and then you, then you buy the new house, you just will really greatly appreciate it. Okay, so anyway, um, that's why people will buy new homes. And you, uh, by the way, you may find out if you're a real estate agent, you may very well work for a builder in which you're the person that sits in the models to show the houses that people are going to come in and buy. So that might be an area. If you want to be a real estate agent that's going to work for a builder and, and manage those, you know, the sales of that subdivision, that's one of the areas you can go into, okay? Uh, in fact, in a lot of cases, you'll find out that you'll not only do that, but you'll probably also have some other management capacity or capabilities that you'll be required to do and reporting you'll have to do. Older homes, on the other hand, we co commonly call uh, resales. 
Those are usually in well-mature areas. You kind of can drive through the neighborhood and know what the neighborhood is really like. You know what kinds of services are provided. In other words, the fire department is there. The streets are in. The curbs are in. Uh, they're not doing constant construction. Um, you know where the school districts are. Uh, for those of us that maybe you like to have mature bushes, mature, mature lawns, want to have all that in place, that really works well. Uh, the important thing is, though, is that if you do have an older home, no matter how old the house is or how young it is, I will tell you that there is going to come a time in which you are going to have to do repair work. And uh, I'm just saying personally now, you know, so anybody that's going to buy an older home, I don't care whether it's a couple years old or, or if you're going to Land Park and buying something that's uh, built in the 20s and the 30s, you're going to have to realize that there's maintenance that's going to be involved in, keep, in keeping the house up on a regular basis. And that's something that the person that's buying the house is either going to have to be able to do themselves, uh, fix the garage door open when it breaks, or fix the plumbing when it goes out, or fix the electrical system or whatever, or they're going to be having to hire somebody to do it. Okay, so there is an advantage and disadvantages to buying both, but uh, older homes usually it's the mature area that's really, really kind of nice of it. Um, okay, so that's the next thing. They do talk about on the next page about having something called a professional home inspection. This is something that has come up in the last number of years. I really can't tell you when. Uh, when all of a sudden somebody, I mean, we've always done inspections. There's always been somebody that's come in and said, listen, I want to have a roof inspection. You know, I want to have the property, especially if it's out in a, in a rural area, I want to have it surveyed. Or if I'm going to build a house on it, I want to have it surveyed. Or I, I want to have a roof inspection. Pool inspections are very important because if something's wrong with the pool or the pool equipment, that can be very costly. So you can have a whole series of various kinds of inspections that are that people will want done. The one thing, though, is, is that there has been more, has become more and more popular somebody called a home inspector. In fact, we just had a home inspector come in and speak to us um, last week at the internship class. And I just want to read what this says. It says it's important to get a professional inspection as to the condition of the contract. Now, remember, when you buy a home, or when a client, I'm talking, I'll talk for a minute out of the client's perspective. When a client buys a home, you have the right, as the buyer, to inspect that property. You have the right. In other words, you have the right to go around with a flashlight and a mirror if necessary and inspect the plumbing and make sure the toilets work and the garbage disposal works. And, you know, you have the right to do that. There's nothing wrong. And a lot of people don't understand that. You can do that. Uh, because when you really think about it, most people will buy a house, believe it or not, <laughs> and they will probably spend very little time when they actually buy it. You know, if you're, if you're looking at homes to buy, you know, the agent is taking you from house to house and showing you the house. You go into the house, you take a look at it. You probably are going to be, you know, by the time you walk through the entire house and walk outside, you've spent maybe about a half hour, 45 minutes at the most. Maybe you've done a little bit of talking, and then, you know, that's it. Probably about, you spend about an hour, and then within that hour's period of time, you've looked at the entire house, and then the next time you're actually going to walk in that house again for most people is when they, when they own it. Now, you, you can inspect the house. You can say, I want to set an appointment aside. I, I me, meaning I, the buyer, I feel skilled set enough that I'm gonna, I want to go in and inspect the house, or I can have myself and my brother inspect the house, or I can hire somebody called a home inspector. A home inspector is a profession that has become more and more 
important to consumers because a lot of consumers don't know how to fix stuff. They don't know how to figure out what's right or wrong, and they need to have somebody come in and give them advice. Most average people, I mean, if it gets beyond mowing the lawn or painting a room, they're about lost. If you start talking about changing the garbage disposal or pulling out the oven, forget it, you're lost. You know, so they need to have somebody that has some kind of professional experience to be able to do the home inspection. So it says right here, um, on real estate purchases, including new, okay, so it's important to get professional inspection as to the condition of the contract on all real estate purchases, including new homes. Now, a lot of times, even on new homes, they'll have a home inspector come through and inspect to make sure everything is correct and have it documented because it's usually within that first year's period of time, if there is something wrong, that's when the builder has to correct the problem. I'm here to tell you the day that the hammer drops and the end of that one year is up, if you have not told them, you are on your own. Unless there's something that you can say to them, you know, you, you can prove that it was something that happened that maybe you couldn't have discovered, you know, and I mean, then you're really pushing the limit or something that you wrote up and appeared to be fixed. For example, you may have moved into the home and, and maybe when you moved in, you noticed that there was a leak in the roof and they sent the roofer guy out and the roofer guy went out and he fixed what they thought was the leak and they ran the hoses over it. They did everything. They couldn't get it to leak. Then all of a sudden your, you know, then all of a sudden your one-year warranty on the new home runs out and now the winter time comes. We all know in Sacramento it starts to rain pretty heavily in, you know, November, December, January, okay? Now all of a sudden it starts to rain and the leak comes back again. Now in that case you could probably have a good argument to go back and say, listen, it was leaking before, it's leaking in the same place. You didn't do the job right, you got to fix it. But I'm here to tell you, though, most new houses at the end of that year period of time, bang, the hammer drops, and to get them to come back out again is very, very difficult. Okay? So anyway, you can get a home inspector for new houses. This costs around $350. That's what it costs. It, and that's usually a base cost. It can cost more money based on how much work they have to do. So if you want them to actually completely crawl underneath a very large house, crawl in the attic, do all the, you know, go all over the place and check it, depending upon the amount of square footage and how much work, your, your fees will go up. But this would be a fairly straightforward house. Uh, so it says, depending upon the size and scope, it is usually paid for by the buyer. That's who pays for it. The buyer pays for it who gets the report with a copy going to the seller with a predetermined time frame. So in other words, when you write your purchase offer, You'll also include in the purchase offers that, that you want to have a home inspection. Your client will do that. You know, say, I want to have a, a, a home inspector. And what will happen, the home inspector, you'll have a certain amount of time in the offer. You'll say, like, the home inspection must be started and completed within 15 days. Okay? And if it's not done within 15 days, something's going to happen. The deal doesn't happen or, or, or you give up your right to have the inspection or something. But you need to know within that period of time what the problem is. Once the home inspection is done, then the home inspector produces this report, and those reports can be either simple or extremely elaborate, including glossy pictures and photographs and documentation. And a uh, home inspector we had come in, Andy was showing us where he, if there's a problem, he actually has the, uh, the building code citation of where the problem is. So there's a lot of documentation that goes into this. But anyway, the report's produced. What happens with that report is, is that a copy of it is normally given to the seller. The seller then has, then will probably, in most cases, negotiate with the buyer and do something like I did, like, hey, I'll fix that, but I won't fix this. Okay, in other words, you negotiate with them. 
you know, and usually what it is is what's happening is that the buyer wants something perfect, and the seller is sitting there and saying something like, listen, excuse me, this said used house. It didn't say new house, <laughs> you know. So usually the buyer is wanting everything to work absolutely perfect, and the seller's turning around and saying, listen, I'm not going to replace the stove because the light, you know, the, the door is a little sticky on the oven. I'm not going to do that. If you want that, you can do that, but I'm not going to change the price and I'm not going to fix it, okay? But I will fix if the toilet bowl's uh, loose. I will fix that. Or he found a leak underneath the sink. I'll fix that, but I'm not going to fix So you will negotiate that back and forth, okay? Anyway, so it talks about that. Okay, next thing they talk about down here when you're looking at used homes is something called functional obsolescence. All functional obsolescence means is that, and, and you really would have an appreciation for this if you went out and looked at a lot of homes. That's one of the reasons why we have people go through the internship class, because we want you to go out and look at tons and tons of houses, because you have more of an appreciation for what this stuff looks like. You'll go into new homes, and you'll see the greatest, most beautiful granite countertops, tiled bathrooms. They look like marble bathrooms, you know, beautiful brand-new fixtures. Then you'll go into some homes that maybe will be in a really nice area, like along American River Drive. And you'll go in there and you'll find out the ceilings are only eight feet high. You know, the cabinets are old, the faucets are old, it's obsolete. You know, the hallways are either too thin or too wide. They're, you know, I mean, it's just obsolete in the functionality of it. Did you have a question, gentlemen, over here? Yes, I did. Now, when you're doing that negotiating, that's called a counteroffer? No. What is that? No. What is it called? The offer and the counteroffer is what you do when you initially do the purchase offer. In other okay. words, where you set a price and everything else. Right. This is a contingency. Okay. Okay. Well, yeah, purchase agreement. Right. Maybe it's a contingency. Upon. Have you still got your button? Okay. 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 What you're really talking about is his question is: Is this something called a counteroffer? And it's not a counteroffer because remember, when you initially make the offer on the property, you make the offer based on a price and terms and all those other things. You know, like listen. Uh, they, uh, contingent upon a home inspection, contingent upon me getting new financing, all that, okay? What's happening here is that you have fulfilled the contingency. You know, you have gotten the report, and now you've discovered something is incorrect. What you're doing then is you're going back to the seller, and you're saying, these things need to be corrected, okay? And that's part of the, you know, part of the, you know, where you're going to say, listen, here's, here's the 20 things that the home inspector found wrong. I want you to fix all those. The seller may come back very well through you, the agent, and say, I'll fix this and this. I'm not going to do the other ones, okay? And you may very well negotiate that back and forth in one form or another. But that's not part of the offer counteroffer. It's just part of the correction. It falls into the same category as this. If you had a termite inspection and the termite inspection was paid for by the buyer and the seller gets the report, and now the seller realizes that there's a bunch of termite. And termite work falls in ter what we call termite report what they discover falls into two categories. One is things that have to be fixed, have to be. You know, in other words, nobody's going to give you financing unless the termites are dead and they're gone and the damage is corrected. But also, the inspector will also see some things that maybe need to be corrected, but they're not due to termite. Okay, they're just something that needs to be. He may write up something like paint missing on side, on bottom part of of uh, siding on house. Has no material effect, doesn't affect the thing, it's just something he noticed. He may write that down. Uh, he may realize that the side, the wood on the side is delaminated a little bit. You know, he may know, just notice those things. 
Those things are not required to be fixed by law. Those are just things that are in the report. And you can very well negotiate those things as either being fixed or not. Yes, go ahead. Yeah. Now, at that time, can the buyer pull out without penalty? Or, or is it, has he already made the, the agreement to, to buy the home? He's already made the agreement to buy the home, but what has to happen is when you make these offers, you have to have limits on what you're going to do. You know, in other words, like if the buyer wants to have some inspection done, then it would be incumbent upon you as the listing agent or the person that's selling the property for the client to say, okay, the buyer or the, the seller is going to make any repair up to, but no, no more than this amount. Okay, so in other words, they'll say, okay, all termite work, I'll fix all termite work, but anything that's going to exceed and they'll name a number, I'm not going to do. Okay, so that has to do with you setting limits on what you're going, what you're going to correct. Okay, you need to do that or otherwise you can end up where you make an offer and there's no end to it. You know, I, 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 can, I, can, I can go out, I, you know, and home inspectors, what they find is really, you can take, uh, in my opinion, you know, I could go out and do an inspection on a house and I could find, you know, what I would consider and report the material things. Or I could go out there with a flashlight and mirror and I could go to town and I can find a lot of stuff. You know, so the question is, is, you know, sometimes the, whoever did the inspection is, is what, you know, what the extent of it happens to be and how detailed oriented they happen to be. You're mainly concerned about material things. Material is going to affect it. Like the water heater that's in the house, has that been installed correctly? Okay. Is it, is, it, is, it, uh, is it braced correctly? You know, in other words, if you had an earthquake, it wouldn't fall out, okay? When you look at the water heater, does it look like it's operated normally or is the sides of the wall scorched? So it looks like that once in a while the flames have come out of the bottom of the water heater. Those are things, those are material things. Those are material objects or material things that you need to be concerned about. The color of the paint would be something different, you know. You know, like I don't like a blue wall, I want a green wall. Well, who cares? Okay, but anyway, fu functional obsolescence, to go back to functional obsolescence, just means that older homes can have things like floor plans that don't work anymore. Uh, you will see people go through periods in which uh, we as Californians typically like something called the great room concept, you know, where the family is in the living, you know, in the family room and has the kitchen and uh, the TV and everything in that room, you'll go even into very big houses and you'll find out that people, no matter how large the house is, still wants that conceptual idea. They want to have the family around where the kids are over here playing some games and the dad's over there watching TV and, or cooking and the mom's over there doing something else and they're all together as a family. So you'll find out that there's houses in which they'll want that concept, but you'll also see houses and you'll go, my goodness, this thing is just functionally is not working right. You know, it just doesn't work right. The stairs are not wide enough, the ceilings are not high enough. Uh, you know, it's going to be real difficult to heat or air conditioning. I mean, some of the houses will have things like, instead of having dual-pane windows, they'll have single-pane windows in them. Uh, I just put dual-pane windows in a house that I own, uh, that I rent out, my son rents for me, and by just replacing the old single-pane with dual-pane windows, it was amazing, absolutely amazing, the differences. You can actually detect it. Just by walking in the house, you say, it's warmer in here <laughs> than it was last year. Or in the summer, it's cooler. Because what they did is functionally, functionally, those older homes, and I'm not talking about real, I mean houses were built in the 70s, the windows didn't open. You know, a lot of them were like, hey, air, energy is free. You know, it's, we, can heat, we can heat this thing and it's not, it doesn't cost us a lot and we can, we can cool it and it doesn't cost us a lot. And, and functionally, it, it, you waste a lot of energy. 
So when we replaced it and put dual pane windows in and made the windows so they could open up and we could get air moving through the house, it was amazing. I mean, amazing in, the, in, the, in, in both the heating bills and the electrical bills and just the general temperature and the feeling of the house. Because, it, it, you know, we brought it up to more common standards than it is today. And that's not cheap, by the way. I mean, to do, you know, in our case, we did all, um, I can't remember the name of the, Milgard. And to have those removed and replaced was almost $10,000. You know, so, I mean, that's a real cost. You know, that's a real cost that if you move in and say, oh, I'll just replace the windows, well, guess what? You better have the money to go along with it. Okay. So, anyway, it talks about obsolescence. <clears throat> it talks about here some of the, uh, <clears throat> now, the next thing they do is they talk about some of the advantages of owning a home. And a couple of the things that they talk about is, uh, as they go through here, one of the things they want to remind you is that you are in California. And for whatever reason, we have been fortunate enough in this state in the last number of years in which the houses have appreciated in value, not uniformly throughout the state. I mean, there's parts of the state where things are extremely expensive. And there's areas where things are fairly low in the, uh, if they're in a rural area. But by and large, our homes have appreciated greatly in value, which has enabled us to do two things. As we pay the house down, we build equity, and as the house goes up in value, we build equity. So we could buy the house, you know, when say in our 20s, 30s, or 40s, and then after owning it for 15, 20 years, we have built up a sizable amount of equity that we can use for retirement or to buy another house. The second thing is, as they say, by owning a house, we have some tax benefits that go with that. Uh, first of all, if you are living in a home, your interest that you pay on your loans every month for your mortgage is tax deductible. Your property taxes are tax deductible. Okay, so those are two things that are tax deductible if it's your own primary residence. Another advantage to it is, is that if you live in the house and you've lived in that house as your primary residence, that's what they're talking about right here. They say at the time of this publication, and the reason why they say that is, by the way, this, cha this has changed over the years, but it says at the time of this publication, there is a capital gains tax for the sale of a home of up to $250,000 if you're single or $500,000 if you're married. What this essentially means is this. If you own a home and you sell that house and you have lived in that house for two out of the last five years, two out of the last five years, and it's been your primary residence, if you're single, you can exclude, in other words, not pay income tax on up to $250,000 of the gain. Gain means the difference between what you paid for it and what you sold it for. Okay, that's if you're single. If you're married, you can exclude up to $500,000. That's a major change. You know, uh, you used to be able to do that, and you can do whatever you want with the money. So, in other words, you can take that money and you could decide, even at 35 or 40, you could decide, listen, you know, I've had it with the big house, I want to sell and move to a smaller house. And as long as you, that money, you don't exceed that, you're not paying any taxes on it. That's a really neat advantage. And you can do that every two years. It's not like I do it once in my life and I'm done. You can do it every two years. Or essentially every, two, you know, you, from a statistical, or not statistical, from a practical standpoint, you'd have to have some kind of a break in it. You just can't move from one to the other to the other. You need to have at least a a couple days in there to move from one to the other, but essentially every two years you can do that and exclude that. So that's a very, very important feature uh, for you to have. One thing I do want to mention to you here, point out that's very important, it's, it says to qualify the home must have been a principal residence for a minimum of two years during the last five years, which I've already said, prior to its sale. 
That's why you'll see where people will want to list a house for sale and say, you know what, I can't really sell the house until the 1st of November. And you go, why? And they'll say, if I sell it before the 1st of November, I haven't lived here two years. I'm going to have to pay capital gains on the sale. So I want to delay the close or I want to delay listing it until that date. But this is even more important. At least one spouse must be the owner during, the, during this time, okay? So in other words, if you're married, if you got married, one of you had to be the owner of the property. Now, just follow along with what I'm saying. But both spouses must have lived in the house for the two-year period. Here's the example that, and in fact, this has been written about in newspapers and everything else. Let's say I am a single person, single and I've lived in a house for 10 years, so I have more than qualified, and it's been my primary residence, I'm more than qualified for me, it's my house. I've lived there, it's been my primary residence, I fit all the requirements, but I'm single. If I sell the house, then the gain that I can exclude is $250,000. But here's what happens, a lot of times people will tend to get married. You know, occasionally people get married. When they get married, one of the things that they do is they say, you know what, I've already got a house, why don't you move in? The other person moves in, they live there for a month or two or three months, and they go, I don't like this house, it's not big enough, remember we got married, I had two kids, you had two kids, it's not big enough, we need a bigger house. And then you say, well, you know what, why don't we sell the house? Remember, here's the kicker, you have to have both people have lived in the house for two years to get the, the total exclusion. So in other words, if I got married today and I had lived in it for two years, uh, for, for 10 years, I could sell it and exclude $250,000. If I got married, my wife would have to live in that house for two years in addition to the years I've already lived there. So then, then I could use the $500,000 exclusion. Just keep that in mind that it's important because a lot of us see where people are getting married and divorced and and, you know, households are constantly changing, and they need to know. If in doubt, what they should do is they should check with their accountant. And usually, I mean, I would say have them check with their accountant because they need to make darn sure. They don't want to miss that date by a couple weeks and find out that they're going to get slammed with some great big gain. Did you have a question? Yeah. Yeah, now, if they were really motivated to sell, they would still be eligible for the 250 wouldn't they? They would, yes. Okay. But when you think about it, if you've owned a house for, say, nine or ten years, and we can all sit back and think for a minute and say, do we know anybody, anybody personally, that maybe got married when they were really young and then got divorced and they have a couple kids and they've been single for a whole bunch of years? Just think about it. You probably can think of somebody. Been single for a whole bunch of years, they've had the kids, but they never got married. You know, for whatever reason. There's a whole bunch of personal reasons why they didn't. And all of a sudden they meet somebody and they say, hey, we're going to get married. They get married. And as soon as they get married, dollars to donuts, what's going to happen is the house is not going to meet both of their needs or it's going to be too small or it's too big or it's too something. And they're going to want to move. And if they're sitting there thinking, aha, the day that we got married, we're now both eligible for this $500,000 exclusion, the answer to that is no. The new person that moved in, whether it be a man or a woman or whatever, they have to live in that house for two years. Okay, prove that they lived in that house for two years. Okay, just so you know that. Okay, some disadvantages of owning a home. You could lose, uh, you could lose value. Uh, houses do go down in value because, for example, the neighborhood goes down. Uh, 
you can find out that it can be uh, originally a very nice neighborhood. One of the biggest things that kills neighborhoods, by the way, is when you have renters move in. And the reason why is because renters, they can be our friends, but they still do not have the same kind of personal buy-in to the neighborhood. There's a big difference if I'm renting where I'll say, you know what, I'll put up with that because you know what, I'm going to move out in six months. On the other hand, if you own the home in the area and your equity is on the line, there's more of a possibility for you to step up to the plate and say, listen, that guy that's got that old car sitting on the front lawn across the street is bringing down the value of the entire neighborhood, and I'm going to call the zoning department, and I'm going to take some action to get that guy to stop that. You know, the words you will. As a renter, you wouldn't, but as an owner, you would, because it's having a direct value effect on your place where you live and on your investment. So when you have an area that, has, that all of a sudden now becomes where there's a lot of people that live in there that are renters, they don't have the same buy-in. And that is usually what has a dramatic effect on the neighborhood because the people that live there just are not the same. In fact, drive around Sacramento, believe me, just get in your car and spend a few weekends driving around and go through some neighborhoods that are tiny little houses. And there are little pockets of them all over the place. Tiny little houses, small little houses, and they're beautiful areas. The lawns are mowed, the bushes are cut, the, it looks beautiful. And it's just an average neighborhood, but if you got, this, you got the list of who lived in the area, you'd find out it's predominantly all owner-occupied. You could go to another area where the homes are fairly expensive, especially you'll start to see that now where maybe some builders are going to start changing their requirements just to get the houses sold. Like, listen, investors can buy the house, and now all of a sudden investors start buying them and running them out. And you drive through the neighborhood, and you go, these are bigger houses. They cost more money. They were for sale for more. They have three-car garage, not a one-car garage. But guess what? I can see the neighborhood is starting to go down. Why? Because there's renters in the area. Renters don't have the same buy-in. Right? You know, so that can have a direct value. Upkeep and maintenance is another thing. You know, if you own a house or own a home, you can't call the landlord anymore. You've got to fix it. And if you don't fix it, it just gets worse. So you either have to be somebody that's going to be able to know somebody or step up to the plate and be able to fix it yourself or be able to pay somebody to come in and correct it. And you may find out that you had absolutely no intention of ever being a carpenter <laughs> or an electrician, but for whatever reason, you're going to find yourself after owning a house for a couple of years that you need to do something, and you're going to be sitting at some place taking some little course on how to do the wiring in some room someplace. Just make sure you don't kill yourself. Um, so upkeep and maintenance can be very, very expensive. And if you don't keep it up, what happens is then you're forced with all of a sudden, you know, if you keep trying to put Band-Aids on it, next thing you know what will happen is then you're in for some major correction, some major fix that has to be done. You know, you don't, you don't fix one thing, like you don't fix a sprinkler that's not working correctly, and then all of a sudden the lawn starts to dry up, the lawn dries up, then the weeds grow up, and the next thing you know, now you're replacing the whole lawn, which is not cheap. That's just an example. Or you got a little bit of a leak underneath the sink, and you start by putting a little thing in underneath just to capture a little water, and then it gets worse and worse, and it starts to overflow. And then when it overflows, now it causes dry rot. Now you got the whole doggone floor coming out because the joists are rotted out. So it's important. Preventative maintenance and taking care of things are very important. And that is a downside. You can't call the landlord anymore. Liquidity is another thing. Liquidity means how quickly can you transfer that money from, from, from an ownership of just real, real hard real property into cash. And remember, the only way, there's only two ways you can get money out of the property. One of the ways is to sell it, 
And it may very well be during a market time in which it's very, very difficult to sell. It may have to sit on the market for a long time. So if you, it's not like stocks or bonds. Stocks or bonds, you call up the stockbroker and say, excuse me, sell. Or if you have cash in the bank, you know, you can write a check. That's very liquid. You write it out and there's the check. Here, a house, you have to put it on the market to sell it. And it can take quite a bit of time in some cases. The other way that you can do it is, is by borrowing against it. But that sometimes is not cheap. Borrowing is not cheap. It's not free money. You know, there's a lot of costs in borrowing that don't seem to be evident. You know, you've got a lot of fees that come up. So it's not liquid. It's not easy to sell. Okay, it's not like stocks or bonds or mutual funds. Okay, so that's the disadvantages. Okay. Um, they do talk about the last thing here, something called um, uh, foreclosure. Just the idea in mind, all foreclosure means is that if you are ever faced with a situation where you haven't been able to make the payments because of illness, sickness, or whatever, and you haven't been able to sell the house, the lender can and will foreclose on the property, okay? Just, just putting that in there. So you, you do always want to make sure you keep the payments up and you don't want to borrow like some of our friends are doing or had done in the last couple of years where they borrowed so much money to get into a house that now what they owe against the house is more than what the house can be sold for. Uh, very dangerous situation to get into. Very, very dangerous. That's why you always want to buy something you can afford to buy and you know you've got some equity in. You don't, you know, you got to be careful when you're stretching it. You know, you, where you can get away with stretching it is right when the market starts to go up. You know, in other words, when the market, you know, you can look at when the market starts. So the market maybe said, okay, well, a three-bedroom, two-bath house in Sacramento is going to sell for $100,000. Maybe today it's three or $400,000. So what you're going to make a good amount of money is, is if you can buy a, when that house just before it starts to go up because you're going to get a good bang for your buck. But if you buy right up at the top of it, how things always settle back. So if you paid 400000 for it, there's a good possibility that that house is going down some in value. So if you have some something that comes up in your life, like you get sick or lose a job or something like that, you have no cushion, <clears throat> no way that you can sell it and get your money out. So it gets to be dangerous. They do talk about this budgeting for a home. Uh, again, uh, to put this in practice, or you know, you're working with clients. Clients are going to need to have set. Not that you would be necessarily the one to sit down with them. In some cases, you would be, but you know, clients are when they go to get the loan. The lender is going to look at how much money they're going to be using to make their. They're going to look at lenders are going to look at different qualifications. But one of the things they're going to look at is, is what is the monthly payment going to be? What's the principal going to be? The interest going to be? The taxes going to be? The insurance going to be? And also nowadays, they'll also look at some other things like is their homeowner's dues on the property. For example, you can buy a condominium over here on, off of Howe Avenue in a community called Woodside. Okay? You can buy that condominium. They originally you know, were selling a couple years ago for $130,000. They're probably for sale for now for maybe about $160,000 to $180,000. But if you have a one-bedroom condo, your homeowner's dues are going to be $250 on up. That's a lot of big chunk of change. That's a lot of money to be forking out every month. It happens to be not tax deductible, by the way. So lenders are going to be factoring those other things in when they're calculating how much you can afford as a monthly payment. Okay, again, we are always usually generally stretching. Usually if, you know, usually if we're, especially if we have jobs that are fairly stable and we're confident that we're going to hold on to our job, we usually will stretch it to get into the house. We'll hit the limit. But again, clients will need to budget their amount of money. It doesn't do really any good for you to take a client out and show them a property to buy if they can't afford to buy it. 
if it's all said and done and, and you've shown them all these really nice houses with the swimming pools in the backyard and, you know, sitting on some acreage and a nice lawn and you get all done, and then they go in to actually try to qualify for the loan, you find out all those houses that I showed them, they can't afford to buy any of them. Okay, maybe they have good credit. It's not the credit issue. They just don't make enough money to be able to afford that. Now you got to, now they're dissatisfied with you. They're disheartened. They're, you know, it really affects their ability, and they may say, the heck with it. I'm not even going to bother buying a house now. If I can't buy those, I'm not going to buy. Okay, so again, you want to get them qualified. Um, last couple, couple things I want to mention to you here before we end the show. Um, just so that you know, I, I'm just mentioning this. They say here, and just so that you know that the marketplace is different depending upon where we are in the market. Right now, we are in a marketplace where the market has slowed down. The interest rates have gone up. The market has slowed down. There was enough, there's been numerous articles that are starting to appear in the magazines and the newspapers in which people uh, that are in the housing industry are starting to lose their jobs. Uh, there's uh, houses have been sitting on the market longer. People are going to expect to have to take some form of a price reduction in order to sell the house. So the market's tended to slow down. Uh, what will happen is, is that it's going to take longer for the houses to be on the market. It's not going to, they're not going to be on the market for a week or two and be sold. They're going to maybe take a, a, a month, two months, three months. There may be a lot of advertising that's necessary, a lot of open houses to sell the house. A lot of work has to go into it. In fact, you as an agent may very well find out during that period of time you may have a lot of listings, okay? And people won't argue with you about commission because guess what? They need to sell their house, okay? But you've got a lot of listings, okay? Conversely, you can get like it was a few years ago where the market is hot as a pistol. If you can even find any kind of a listing, anything, I mean, realtors would get on the Internet in the middle of the night as soon as they knew it was updating, the system was updating, to find out any listings that were for sale for their clients, when I sold my house, I was getting offers on my house sight unseen. In other words, people making an offer saying, I'm going to offer you full price for your house subject to me taking a look at it <laughs> because they were moving from the Bay Area or something. So keep in mind that the market consistently and constantly changes. So whatever works this year may not work next year, okay, for both you and your clients. It's important to know that it's constantly changing, constantly, okay? And the last thing I'm going to mention down here, and we'll pick up the next time on 164, is to talk about why buyers buy. Buyers, there's two types of buyers, if you will. There's people that buy investment type of property. In other words, they're buying money to invest in real estate, like they want to buy apartment houses, shopping centers, single-family homes to make money. Their decision to buy a house is a very unemotional decision. They've they scribble out some numbers. They say, yes, I can make some money. Here's my offer. Take it or leave it, and they move on to the next one. When you're buying a home and your buyers are buying a home to live in, it's a very emotional decision. There's all sorts of emotions that comes in there. You know, what am I going to look like sitting in front of the TV? How's my family going to feel here? I mean, there's the issues like, are the kids going to be safe? Is the neighborhood an area where my, my, I'm, my family is going to be safe? Does it look good? Um, you know, they'll be concerned about things like when I was selling my house, you know, like, for example, is, is, is uh, can the kids play in the front yard? You know, is the traffic too high in the neighborhood? It's all very emotional. What color is the house? Are the drapes the right color? It's totally emotional. That's people usually buy or make their decision on emotion, 
And once they make their decision on a motion, then whether they can buy or not is based on whether they can financially afford it. Okay, but it is purely emotional. You know, if you can envision that, just what do I look like sitting in front of that TV set on Saturday night? So anyway, emotion is very, very important. It says people buy, people don't buy houses, they buy benefits. Okay, very important that we distinguish between whenever we're selling anything between what something is called a feature and something's called a benefit. Okay, and you have to sort of think about that for a while. You know, what's the features of the house? Okay, and what's the benefit of actually, uh, of actually living there? Okay, benefits can be, for example, a feature of the house could be that the house have, all has uh, dual pane windows. That's a feature. The benefit of that is the fact that they now have lower heating and air conditioning bills. Okay, a feature can be that they have a swimming pool in the backyard. Bob, are we getting close to the end? I don't know whether Bob's still there. Okay, thank you. Uh, always worried about Bob. Make sure Bob's okay. <laughs> um, I was going to say, so a feature could be, you know, that it has a, a, a swimming pool in the back. A benefit to you is that it's a place for your family, you know, to enjoy, you know, the weekend, you know, to, to swim or whatever. So in other words, whenever you think of it, people are buying benefits. They're seeing themselves enjoying sitting in, laying, using that house. That's what they see. Okay, very, very, very important that, they, that, that that's what they're buying, is the benefits of it. And uh, I think the uh, last thing that maybe, I think we're getting close to the end. Bob will let me know here in a minute. Um, the last thing that I wanted to mention here is that we want to talk about when, great, when, is, when do homes actually sell. And just what I want you to keep in mind is the fact that there are certain seasons in which the home sales are very busy and there are areas where they're fairly slow. Typically, most people buy homes, we're talking about homes now, where they're going to live based on things like when the kids are going to get out of school. So you typically will see people will be calling you up and listing their homes for sale usually three to four months before June or July, and they're going to want to move in, have the house selected, their new house, and the kids in school by the begin middle of August to the beginning of September. And that's when the feverish time is. That's when the sales are. And like the old Irish saying is, is that you had to be ready, willing, and able, and prepared to make hay when the sun shines. In other words, when there are people out there looking to buy houses, you've got to be ready, willing, and able to show them to them. Okay? Very, very important. With that, we'll see you back here the next time for show number 10, I think, right? Thank you very much.